happened again today. It was right after the extended forecast, as always. I had just said something about 51% humidity, and the next thing I know, the entire crew is staring at me, befuddled. I turn to the news anchors, and they're gesticulating wildly, trying to get me to talk. Panicked, I look at the teleprompter and mechanically read what it says. Friendly banter, I say to TV audiences across the city. The camera's red light shuts off, and we go to commercial. Are you alright? asks the assistant, wiping the heavy beads of sweat from my brow. You spaced out for like 10 seconds. 10 seconds. It used to be only 5. This is not a good development. October 13th. The Nielsen's came out today. The TV ratings. The measure of my self-worth. At this point in my career, I don't need to read them anymore. To find our share of the local market, I merely count the number of hives on my boss's face, take the inverse, and multiply by 25, a formula with a surprisingly low margin of error. We're getting slaughtered in the 18-24 year old demographic, my boss rants. Five hives, a five share. We did well with women over 65, notes the editorial director. Who cares, retorts my boss. As far as the advertisers are concerned, you're dead at 54. This reminds me, I turn 55 in one week. So long to the target demographic. October 14th, grocery shopping. In the produce section, an attractive woman about 30, smiles at me nervously as we reach for the same mango. She's not flirting, it's just because I'm on TV. It triggers the same impulse in everyone. The awkward movements, the stolen glances. Maybe she'll mention it to her husband over dinner. Guess who I saw at Century today, honey? 20 years ago, I would have at least smiled back, but instead, I just grabbed the mango and hurriedly run off. I'm so pathetic. And a shoplifter. October 15th. My boss makes me go over the game film. First, I watch rival meteorologist Block Nelson's award-winning coverage of the July tornadoes. Block is the darling of the 18 to 24 year olds. If you don't believe in God, you will, says Block menacingly on the TV screen, images of flying cattle swirling behind him. And if you do believe in God, you'll wish you didn't. My boss slaps my shoulder. Now that's dynamic meteorology, he says. Next, I review my own forecasts. After I warn of scattered showers, Deborah, one of the co-anchors, says, So, it looks like it's gonna rain on the parade of homes, huh, Gary? The camera cuts to me, and I just stand there, frozen, glass-eyed and unblinking. After five seconds of dead air, there's a quick cut to Deborah, who mumbles, sports is next, and then the screen is consumed with static. I don't remember doing that at all. Where did I go during those five seconds? I rewind the tape 
and freeze frame on my vacant expression. What is going on behind those eyes? October 16th. In a staff meeting earlier in the day, our boss tells us to be hipper, to grab the attention of the 18 to 24 year olds. What's up, Madison? Deborah starts the 9 o'clock broadcast. I shift uncomfortably in my seat, dreading my forecast even more than usual. In my heyday, I was praised for my folksy charm, but that isn't what the advertisers want anymore. During a short segment on hip-hop-related shootings, I contemplate how to make myself more appealing to young people, but nothing comes to mind. Defeated, I deliver my forecast in my usual staid voice, a relic of a bygone era. Thanks, Gary, says Dan, the other anchor. You're my dog. This time, the blackout lasts for 20 seconds. October 17th, the pharmacy. Waiting for my heart medication, I notice the woman from the grocery store staring at me, directly into my eyes. Maybe she is interested in me after all. Maybe I'm not as old as I think. Maybe, no. It's only because she's surprised by my green eyes. On TV, I wear blue contacts because I deliver the forecast in front of a green wall, and the technical director uses an effect called chroma key to get rid of anything green and replace it with a computer-generated weather map. If I didn't have the contacts, my irises would be nothing but hollow portals into the southern Wisconsin landscape. If I was to ever cover my body in green paint and close my eyes, I would be completely invisible. This idea gets more and more appealing each day. October 18th. The station forces me to participate in a charitable carnival for muscular dystrophy, or Hodgkin's lymphoma, or some other frightening sounding disease. Dan and Deborah, the anchors, are the MCs. Russ, the sports guy, runs the football toss. Of course, I get the dunk tank. At first, the contestants are mostly small children with bad aim, so my descents into the frigid water are few and far between. But then Block Nelson steps up, a made-for-TV grin on his face, and proceeds to nail the target with every single throw for 15 minutes straight, drowning me for charity. I never see him throw the ball. I never feel myself falling. One second, I'm sitting on the chair, perched above the tank, watching Block Nelson wind up, and the next second, I'm gasping for air. When I clear the water from my eyes, I always see the same thing. Block's smiling face, his sculpted jawline, his peroxide hairstyle, immaculate. October 19th, the mall. 18 to 24 year olds everywhere. They're like swarms of locusts in baggy pants. Rap music blares from a Sam Goody, inundating me with a cacophony of bleeped out catchphrases. Upscale fashion boutiques flaunt the latest styles I couldn't possibly comprehend. The mannequins are getting more attractive each year. 
I see the 30-year-old woman in the food court, sipping a latte, but she's soon enveloped by the 18 to 24-year-olds. They're everywhere, coursing, an undulating sea. Convinced they'll swallow me whole, I stagger out of the revolving doors and collapse in the parking lot, hyperventilating. Schoolchildren point at me from a parked bus. I can't do this anymore. October 20th. The station gives me an on-air birthday celebration. Dan and Deborah presenting me with an elaborate cake with storm clouds and bolts of lightning made of frosting. I bend over, taking a deep breath, and make a wish. In the split second before they go out, I swear I detect something in the flicker of the candles. An answer, maybe? A directive? I'm ready to do anything they tell me, go anywhere, but then the message evaporates. I stand upright, in front of the green wall, and beneath my contacts, my green eyes dissolve with the smoke. Behind them is nothing but a computer-generated warm front that tomorrow will be gone. I don't need a weatherman to tell me that the winter is coming. Chucho's Mexican Restaurante was not Roland's idea of an authentic ethnic culinary experience. The hostess and servers were all white, in their late teens or early twenties, and the kitchen staff vaguely resembled the cast of Dukes of Hazard, good old boys with flannel shirts and tight denim jeans. He could see the kitchen staff through a large plate glass window in the entryway. They had just ordered three extra-large pizzas from Gumby's across the street. Roland had been dragged to Don Chucho's by his wife, Eleanor, for a meeting of their church's dinner club, which convened at a different Madison, Wisconsin eatery once a month. Last month was a seafood restaurant, Casales, where Roland ordered raw oysters and developed a severe case of food poisoning. Roland and Eleanor were greeted at the door by a full mariachi band whose trumpet blasts and guitar strumming competed with the soft rock of REO Speedwagon piped through the restaurant's speakers. The hostess, who cheerfully said her name was Brianna, 
showed them to a long row of four-person tables in the back. Most of the dinner club had already arrived, and Roland and Eleanor sat down at the sole remaining empty table. Roland wearily scanned the other dinner guests, nothing but boring housewives and their obnoxious, loud-mouthed husbands. It would be another evening of enduring painful, drawn-out conversations about the Green Bay Packers, or grade school curriculums, or a new drug for attention deficit disorder. Roland immediately grabbed the drink menu and wondered how many margaritas he could down without losing consciousness. Hi, Eleanor, said Fran Garibaldi, seated at an adjacent table. How was your trip to Des Moines? Just super, said Eleanor. Just super. Roland helped himself to the complimentary chips and salsa. They were hopelessly bland. Bland was the word that frequently came to his mind at these functions. Bland people, bland decor, bland conversations. When he was a student here in the 60s at the University of Wisconsin, there was nowhere more exciting than Madison. Protests, riots, bombings, police beating kids with billy clubs, this was it. This was the Midwestern hub of the counterculture, the Third Coast, they called it. Now, 25 years later, his life was nothing but invoices, activity reports, teleconferences, company picnics. He was lost in the vast, immutable wasteland of terminal blandness. A waitress took drink orders, and Roland asked for two chupacabra margaritas, the first installment of what was sure to be a prodigious drink tab. As Eleanor engaged Fran Garibaldi in a conversation about flu vaccinations, Roland played with the twin salt shakers in the center of the table, speckling the tacky jalapeno pepper-themed tablecloth with fine white crystals. As he imagined the salt crystals spread across the rim of a margarita glass, a man he had never seen before took the seat opposite his and introduced himself. Hi, I'm Dale Gregory, he said, and this is my wife, Cecilia. We're new to the parish. Roland glanced up from his salt shakers and shook Dale's hand, but didn't see his wife. His eyes darted around the room, searching for Cecilia among the dinner guests, the waitstaff, the mariachi band, and finally he spotted her, right in front of him, next to the salt shakers. She was slim, gorgeous, absolutely stunning, and she was 11 inches tall. Well, aren't you two just the cutest little couple, said Eleanor. I'm Eleanor, and this is my husband, Roland. It's a pleasure to meet you. Roland was speechless. Cecilia was a miracle, a revelation, an elegant Victorian-era porcelain doll brought to life. She wore a strapless gown with a black bodice and a slim white skirt with a gold floral border, and her hands and lower arms were covered with long black tricot gloves. Compared to his wife, Cecilia was a paragon of sophistication. She was like a miniature Jackie Onassis in doll clothes. Pleased to meet you, said Cecilia, who spoke through a tiny megaphone that amplified her voice to audible levels. It was distorted and garbled, 
but Roland still found it beautiful. She flashed him a precocious smile, and he almost knocked over his glass of water. He'd known her for five seconds and had already nearly crushed her to death. I just love your dress, said Eleanor to Cecilia. Where did you get it? I found it online, she said. It's from a 1965 Barbie collection called So Free Fashion Fun. Everything's held together with glue strips. Dale and Cecilia met at the University of Wisconsin-Milwaukee, where they were both architecture students. They married after college and moved to Madison, starting their own firm. Cecilia did the majority of the designs, her tiny fingers perfect for the intricate, detailed blueprints, and Dale handled the business end, acquiring clients and catering to their needs. They spent the entire evening gazing into each other's eyes, smiling and laughing, the picture of domestic tranquility, and Roland wondered how long it had been since he and Eleanor shared an evening like that. Ten years? Twenty? Time was very nebulous in the interminable desert of blandness. The Gregories sure were nice, weren't they, hon? said Eleanor in the car ride home. But Roland didn't hear her. He was too busy thinking of Cecilia. So precious. So exquisite. Like some rare tropical flower that blooms just once every fifty years. In the next month, it was the rare moment when he wasn't thinking of Cecilia. Of her strapless gown. Her alabaster skin. Her garbled megaphone voice. At work, he would drift off in front of his computer and imagine Cecilia sitting on his lap or in his pocket, massaging his skin with her tender, tiny fingers. During meetings, he would block out his boss's rambling mission statements and pretend Cecilia was perched on his shoulders, whispering sweet nothings into his ear. When he wasn't fantasizing about Cecilia, Roland would brood over something that profoundly troubled him. Namely, why were she and Dale so happy together? For one thing, how could they possibly make love, since Dale was easily six times her size? Roland envisioned several scenarios in which they might achieve sexual climax, but all were laughably ridiculous and highly dangerous. Cecilia seemed so fragile, like a porcelain doll. He wondered if she could even sleep in the same bed as Dale, if he rolled over, he would smother her to death. Still, the Gregories seemed to be so much in love, calling each other pet names, trading lust-filled glances, and not at all the symptoms of a sexless marriage, something Roland was intimately familiar with. He hadn't slept with his wife in four months. Roland visited a medical specialist and obtained a brochure on miniaturization, a recently developed surgical technique wherein the human body could be reduced to more than ten times its size. He privately studied the brochure at home and dreamed of surprising Cecilia from behind the salt shakers, reduced to her diminutive size, taking her tiny fingers in his. She would gaze at him with tear-stained eyes, deeply moved by his tremendous sacrifice, and kiss him on the lips and he would caress the inside of her mouth with his tongue, the only tongue that could ever fit in her mouth, and she would know he was the man for her. 
Before Dale could stop them, they would slide down the tablecloth, scurry across the floor, and disappear into a hole in the wall, living happily ever after. Of course, what actually happened was Eleanor discovered the miniaturization brochure in the drawer where Roland kept his Sports Illustrated swimsuit editions and angrily confronted him when he came home from work. So I'm too tall for you, is that it? She said, waving the brochure, her hand shaking with rage. How small do you want me? Half size? A quarter size? Do you want me to be your little doll? Your toy? Your plaything? Roland explained that the brochure wasn't for her, it was for him. Lately, he had been in a rut, a funk, and he needed a change. Miniaturizing himself might be the spark he needed to revitalize their relationship. Eleanor told him she was dead set against it, and suggested he see a psychiatrist. Why can't you just get a sports car like every other man with a midlife crisis, she said. You don't need to go shrinking yourself. I need a change, Eleanor, he said. I need a change. After that, Roland and Eleanor's already strained relationship became even colder, even more venomous. When they weren't staring each other down in icy silence over their plates of corned beef hash and canned peas, they were smashing the fine china to make a dramatic point and bellowing at each other through furiously slammed doors. In the middle of their domestic battles, the phone would ring, and Roland would storm upstairs as Eleanor said, Hi Fran. Oh, super. Just super. It was so unfair, Roland thought. Dale and Cecilia were so happy, so in love, while he and his wife were enemy combatants, probing for their opponent's slightest weakness and exploiting it until their rival was a mangled corpse on the marital battlefield. What was their secret? What were they hiding? He had a right to know. The next dinner club event was at Paco's, another Tex-Mex restaurant, which also had a full mariachi band. Roland and Eleanor sat across from Fran Garibaldi and her husband, and Roland ordered a steady stream of therapeutic margaritas to cope with the relentless tedium of the dinner conversations. At the other end of the long table were Dale and Cecilia, the lovebirds lost in each other's gaze. Roland stared at them with red, vengeful eyes. The dinner wore on, more complimentary chips, more banal conversations, more margaritas, and Roland's clouded mind was overcome by jealousy as he watched Cecilia rest on Dale's shoulder, whispering sweet nothings into his ear. Roland lifted himself out of his chair with great difficulty and staggered towards the far end of the table, his face locked in an expression of alcoholic determination. When he reached Dale and Cecilia, he leaned his face inches from Cecilia's tiny 11-inch body and interrupted her conversation with protracted, slurred words. What's your secret? He said to Cecilia. I have a right to know. Cecilia turned from Dale's ear and looked at him inquisitively. Excuse me, she said, 
through the megaphone. I saw you two from across the table, cooing like lovebirds, said Roland. And what I want to know is, what's your secret? How do you do it? I'm not sure I understand, said Dale, cautiously cupping Cecilia in his hand. You know what I mean, said Roland. How do you two make love? How do you two screw? Cecilia and Dale looked away from Roland, deeply embarrassed, hoping he would go away. Instead, he remained there, his head next to Dale's shoulder, asking them again and again, how do you make love, with increasing volume and veracity. Dale set Cecilia on the table, away from Roland's saliva-infused speech, and slumped into his chair with a look of acute discomfort, the other dinner guests equally ashamed of Roland's presence. I have a right to know, screamed Roland. I have a right to know. Just then, the mariachi band marched into the dining room and played a spirited rendition of Happy Birthday as a waiter presented a chocolate cake with five lit candles to a nearby table. The horn's shrill blare drowned out Roland's voice, and he was reduced to a silent red face, flapping his mouth open and closed, the veins bulging on his neck like rock pythons. The dinner club ignored him, focusing on their meals, resuming their conversations, and Roland kept screaming, speckling the floor with his saliva. Cecilia returned to Dale's shoulder, whispering sweet nothings into his ear, and Roland felt smaller and smaller, until his presence was as inconsequential as the tiny crystals on the rim of a salt shaker. First, the town thought it was gophers. The holes were irregularly spaced across manicured lawns, children's playgrounds, and median strips. They would appear overnight, pockmarked front yards greeting the neighborhood as they collected the morning paper from their doorsteps. An expert was consulted, and he recommended spraying the lawns with coyote urine, which would alert the gophers to danger 
and make them leave for safer areas. Due to the widespread demand, the urine was delivered in a tanker truck and rationed out to residents by the Knights of Columbus in used oil barrels. Everyone diligently applied the liquid deterrent to their lawns with watering cans and pump-action perfume bottles, but the only result of their efforts was that the entire town smelled vaguely like a zoo exhibit. For Mrs. Statmuller, the Phantom Gophers could not have come at a worse time. The Beautiful Gardens contest, which she had won the last two years, was in one week, and the thought of some filthy rodent ruining her bid for the Triple Crown sent her careening into a twilight realm of irrationality and paranoia. After using up the allotted quantity of urine, she snuck into the neighbors' yards and drained the surplus from their barrels, like a young hoodlum siphoning gas. Every day when her children came home from school, Mrs. Statmuller would be there on the front yard, spritzing coyote scent on her petunias with a portable patio mister. The week before the contest, Mrs. Statmuller placed her children on overnight sentry duty on the front porch, alternating shifts every three hours. They sat on the steps, a garden rake in their hands, ready to impale an unsuspecting gopher head as it popped out of the flower bed. Darlene, status report, Mrs. Statmuller said to her 12-year-old daughter in the morning, over eggs absentmindedly scrambled to oblivion. No sign of the gophers, Darlene said, falling asleep into her oatmeal. Though Darlene was telling the truth, she neglected to mention that the gophers were actually a boy named Fillmore, the son of Darlene's guidance counselor. After drifting off to sleep on the porch one night, she was awakened by a rustling in the bushes, and there was Fillmore, rooting around in her mother's hydrangeas with a shovel and what appeared to be a cheerleader's baton. What are you doing? Darlene asked, startled. I'm looking for a complete triceratops skeleton, Fillmore said, carefully studying the tip of the baton. Fillmore was the worst student in the sixth grade. Darlene once had to work on a science project with Fillmore, and all he did was doodle pictures of dinosaurs in the margins of their lab report. He wanted to be a paleontologist, but did miserably in all of his classes, so he figured his only shot at world renown was to discover dinosaur fossils beneath the soil of his podunk Wisconsin town. Hence, the holes. Fillmore asked Darlene to hold his baton, and on closer inspection, it turned out to be a child's magic wand, black with white tips. Fillmore explained that it was a fossil detector, and Darlene asked him how it worked. Well, half of it is Newtonian physics, Fillmore said, and the other half is magic. Fillmore's father was a magician who performed at children's birthday parties and school auditoriums. He disappeared inside a confessional booth during a show at Our Lady Queen of Peace Elementary and was never seen again. Neither was his voluptuous 23-year-old assistant. I'm getting some excellent readings from your flower bed, said Fillmore, bending down with his shovel poised. I'm going to check them out. Darlene informed Fillmore that if he dug up her mother's flower bed, she was supposed to impale his head with her rake, so they struck a deal. Fillmore agreed to leave the Statmuller's flowers alone, and Darlene promised to keep Fillmore's nocturnal activities a secret. They shook hands, and he was gone, 
swerving this way and that through the neighbor's lawns that the magic wand guided his path. The week went on, and one by one the neighbor's lawns succumbed to the phantom gophers, but Mrs. Statmuller's petunias were spared. Remain vigilant, girls, she said to her children while handing them their rakes. In school, Darlene sat through her teacher's lectures with her head resting on her desk, exhausted from last night's sentry duty, and watched Fillmore meticulously create a flipbook of a flying pterodactyl on the bottom right-hand corner of his textbook. She had never noticed him before. He was so plain-looking, so ordinary, but now he exuded an almost magnetic aura. She'd had crushes before on the tall, athletic boys that played football and basketball, but this was different. She was bonded to Fillmore because of his secret, their secret, an intimacy wrought by scandal, and now the tall, athletic boys seemed ordinary. They weren't out hunting the Triceratops. That Friday was the middle school dance, an event Darlene had been looking forward to since the snow began to thaw in late February. It was also the evening before the beautiful gardens contest. Darlene was walking out the door, her hair in curlers, her pink chiffon dress billowing in the wind, when her mother stopped her in the yard, holding a spray bottle of urine. Where do you think you're going? Mrs. Stapmuller asked Darlene. You've got sentry duty tonight. But mom, Darlene complained, it's my first middle school dance. You should have gotten a sub, Mrs. Stapmuller scowled. That night, Darlene sat on the front porch in her chiffon dress, a garden rake resting limply at her side, not bothering to take out her curlers. She thought about her friends, all made up with mascara, eyeing the boys from across the dance floor, a disco ball bathing everything in diffuse light. She imagined it must be magical. You look nice tonight, said a voice from the bushes. It was Fillmore. Fillmore took a seat on the porch beside Darlene and lay his shovel next to her rake, keeping the fossil detector in his right hand. He grabbed a handful of her dress and rubbed the fabric between his fingers. Is this supposed to attract the gophers? he asked. His eyes gleamed in the porch light, and Darlene thought about how he'd look beneath a disco ball, the skewed squares circulating across his face. It would suit him, she thought, the distortion. Would you like to dance? she asked him. Fillmore took Darlene's hand and led her to the flower bed. There was no music, but they found a sort of rhythm in the chirps of the crickets, and they swayed back and forth on the front steps, as if gently moved by the wind, her arms around his neck, his around her waist, the wand lightly rubbing against her shoulder blades. As they silently waltzed amid the petunias, Darlene slowly moved her hand down the fossil detector and clasped it over Fillmore's clenched fist. It was shaking violently. Hold on, he said, retreating from her embrace. It's here somewhere. I can feel it. What's here? Darlene asked, audibly annoyed. The Triceratops. Fillmore raced to the front porch and retrieved his shovel, a feverish smile forming on his face. Darlene grabbed her rake, blocking his path 
to the flower bed. You can't dig here, she pleaded. It's the beautiful gardens contest tomorrow. This is bigger than a garden contest, he said. This is going to be historic. But you don't even know it's down there, she countered. That's the whole point, he said. That's the very essence of discovery. Darlene stood there, wanting to step aside, wanting to let him through, but she couldn't budge. Her feet were planted in the ground. Fillmore sensed this, and without saying a word, he disappeared down the street, following a straight line. The wand was cold and dead in his hand. The next day, Mrs. Stapmuller lost Best in Show to Mrs. First's bleeding hearts, and in a fit of rage she went over her prize-winning petunias with a lawnmower. The judges liked the flower's appearance, but complained that they exuded the aroma of a dog kennel. A groundskeeper discovered Fillmore absent-mindedly digging small holes in the cemetery, and he was turned over to the authorities and charged with damage to public property. His mother sent him to boot camp, and Darlene never saw him again. Sometimes, when she can't sleep, Darlene walks outside to the flower bed and stands where the petunias once were, gazing at the streetlights. If she squints her eyes enough, little squares appear behind her eyelids, cycling in time with the crickets. She stands for what seems like ages her feet sinking into the mud and waits to fossilize. Somebody else, but first she says to.